Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I'm here with James Gearing. Man, you are legendary, and I'm so excited to talk to you, man. You're a host and CEO of at Behind the Shield podcast, retired firefighter paramedic. What's really interesting, man, I'm a retired police officer, so we're going to have some fun today. I'm excited to, to kind of banter with you a little bit about uh, the semantics between police officers and firefighters, and you are a stuntman, man, at Universal Studios, Japan and now in florida yes yeah and california as well but just so you know you're saying that the title of your podcast wrong is chase the vase chase the vase when we're in england that's how we say it <laughs> hey so do me a favor talk to me about this stuntman thing because i wonder how a fi- i mean i understand how firefighters can get into stuntman stuff but i want to hear the story so actually it was not being a firefighter that got me into stuntman stuff very long story short and i've I've told this story before but i was told at school age that i was colorblind and i could never be a firefighter basically take all the fun stuff and throw it in the bin you can determine the sex of badgers and you can you know be a poodle groomer or whatever you don't need good eye vision for and so i was really lost for a while because that is what i dreamed of doing as a kid i ended up following a girl who was at a drama college and so i took drama while I was there. So I ended up being really crap at acting, really, really bad, but seemed to be pretty good at the stunt stuff. I had a martial arts background. So fast forward a few years, I was traveling around the world with the same girl and Universal Studios was looking for stunt people when I was in Australia to open the park in Japan. So I auditioned, I'm like, what the hell have I got to lose? Um, I ended up getting the role as the T-1000 in the T-2 stunt show. So that's the bad guy, Robert Patrick. And that was it. And then that took me to that relationship finished but i met um what's now my mother my uh, little boy's mother we're since divorced sadly but i met her so we then got married and moved to the u.s she was american and when i was here i kind of had an epiphany hey i can see colors and it took me a long time to figure that out i'm not the sharpest tool in the box probably be a terrible detective but uh then i went to fire school became a firefighter but because i already had the stunts going I did those two careers pretty much um, side by side. Fire fire service obviously was my main career, but the stunts is kind of like my side hustle, as they say. Man, love that. That's got to be pretty cool. So you work at Universal Studios? Yes. How dangerous is it? Like when I see a stuntman, I'm thinking about the guys hanging off cliffs, go jumping in fire. What, what do you got going on? No, well, that's what's funny is when firefighters discover that I do stunts, they're impressed. And I tell them, well, you don't understand. You do. We do the real stunt work. Like everything that we do actually is dangerous. Even knocking on a door on an EMS call, you might get shot. You know what I mean? So it's super safe. I mean, we do a lot of, you know, like stage fights and stuff. I've done pirate shows where I do fall somewhat and, you know, have sword fights up in masts and stuff. But it's still super controlled. You know exactly what's going to happen if everything goes the way it's supposed to. There's, of course, an element of danger, but it's under a controlled environment. What I love about the fire service is you have no idea the chaos is about to unfold when the tones go off. So two different things. And what was interesting for me, what you do, what I did, I do. I mean, I don't consider us retired even when we transition out. I mean, if something happens and we drive by it, we're going to jump out and, you know, react regardless. But I find our professions focus on the well-being of others. And in the performance world, not necessarily the men and women that I work with in stunts specifically, but that world, there's a lot of 
I'm the most important person on the planet. Look at me. So that kind of dichotomy was kind of hard to deal with at times where, you know, people were queening out about their costume not being right. And I just, you know, had a dead baby eight hours before. So that's, uh, it's kind of an interesting kind of parallel universe in, in that respect. Last night, we're playing cards as a family and my wife gets this tone on her phone. My wife's a ambulance chaser. I'm going to sell her out for a second. Kind of funny. She loves, if she sees lights inside, she's not a police officer, but or a firefighter, but she loves she loves that, right? There's a call that comes out down the street, and she's like, hey, we got to go check it out. So we get on our bikes, ride down to the scene. The police have it all shut off. She talks to the officers, finds out there's been a death under the under this bridge. Now, what, what do you do with that information? It's a mile and a half away from the house, and now we know there's a dead body under the bridge. So where do we go from here? Anyways, I just find it funny how we don't change. We still chase it, right? That adrenaline. Is that what got you to write this book? You wrote a book on the focus on mental or the one more life, death and humanity through the eyes of a firefighter. Man, talk to me about that because I'm seeing that as a police officer and we didn't see a lot of humanity. You know, when you look at it now today, it's kind of a scary time to be an officer, even a first responder, just the unknown of what's really going on out there. So why would you write the book? Well, I think the reason was... As we, we touched on before we started recording, what I realized in, in my career, which is basically 14 years actually on the streets, but it, it was some pretty high, high speed first Jews, I guess people would say, especially earlier in my career, a lot of trauma, a lot of fire, a lot of, you know, death and overdoses and, and gang activity and all those things. And we get to see behind the curtain. The civilians of the world get this image of the world through their screens. Well, you and I get to see it real world. So we get to see if drug prohibition works. We get to see if these cholesterol and hypertension meds actually keep people alive. You know, all these kind of myths that are out there. And so what I want to do was not write a book like, hey, I'm James Gearing, I got all the answers. Quite the opposite. It was to tell stories through our lens and sow seeds with, you know, with some, some things that people are doing as far as actually bringing solutions to these problems, but just make people think. They then take their own rabbit hole for their own wellness, their, you know, whatever it is. But topics like, you know, driving. I mean, we lose, I think it's 40,000 people a year on the roads. And coming from England, our driving test is really, really hard to pass. Most people take about at least three attempts to pass it. And when I came over here, basically, I drove around a parking lot and they gave me a driving license. And I was like, what the hell is this? And then fast forward, becoming a firefighter, you see the ripple effect of that, the low bar set, the driving level, and all the deaths that we see on the roads. So it was just that. I mean, so many of the deaths that we see are preventable. So many of the issues that we're seeing at the moment are preventable. You know, what we're seeing is the cause and effect of some really, really awful laws that were put together, you know, put down almost 100 years ago that have empowered so many people in the criminal world that have allowed mental health to become a crime, you know, that we have these gangs on the streets, we have so much violence that now our police officers are, you know, wearing tactical gear and, and terrified to even do a traffic stop without getting shot in the face or even just pull over and have lunch and getting executed. And so trying to reverse engineer, protesting and forming sides and having hashtags is completely freaking useless. People are still dying, you know? So we have to go back to the very beginning of these issues, the industrialization of farming and the obesity epidemic that we have. You know, I mean, all these things have a, have a starting point. And there are countries around the world that are doing so many of the things that each country has issues with really well. Portugal with drugs, the UK when well-funded with healthcare, Finland with education. Norway with prisons. So it's about trying to tell those stories as well and get people to think outside the way we've been indoctrinated 
to believe addicts are scumbags, you know, homeless are bums, prostitutes are whores, and all these pigeonholes that we put people who have most likely been through hell early in their life and have now become, you know, these characters that we see on the streets. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, man. I, I faced a, uh, a 10-year opioid addiction, was run over as a police officer due depression, sadness, loneliness, you know, all that, losing my profession as a first responder, kind of went inward. And But you look at me, you see me at Walmart walking down the street, or I don't look like an opioid addict. I don't look like a criminal. But when you find out that I've, I've used drugs, that I've used opioids to mask my pain, all of a sudden, hey, that guy's a drug addict. It's a junkie. Is a junkie. And you, and you alluded to Portugal, the way they're doing it. I love their system. I think their system's phenomenal. Now, do I agree with legalizing all medication, all drugs? No. But do I love the idea of giving them hope, jobs, profession, a team, environment? I love that idea. But how do we ever get to the point in the United States when there's so much, there's so much push-pull, so much hatred that goes on? How do we ever break the stigma? So there's a phrase that I use, uh, educated and angry. And uh, I joke that I'm going to make a t-shirt with that one day, and I probably will. Because so right now we have uneducated and angry. So, you know, for example, we have, you know, the BLM riots, and I'm not talking about the peaceful protesters, where, as we saw, they're protesting a black death and they go through black communities, burn black businesses and kill black people. Obviously, that makes no sense. We have the George Floyd incident where there's no doubt in my mind that was a horrendous, you know, black eye to law enforcement. And, you know, he should still be alive today because of not only that one individual, but everyone that was on scene that should have interjected and said, what the hell are you doing? So what we need to do is educate people of the, again, the nucleus of these issues. So for example, when we're talking about race, one of the things I think that is often misunderstood with slavery is if you look at the nucleus of that, that came from greed and corruption and power hunger. And it was a very few people that benefited from that horrendous you know, human atrocity. It was the plantation owners and the slave traders and the people in Africa that were selling the slaves. And the rest of the Americans were just going about a business, you know, not knowing anything about it. They weren't getting wealthy from it. And now fast forward to this issue that we have. So get a people to understand they have the power to change these issues. The prohibition. I went and actually interviewed the guy who spearheaded the decriminalization of drugs in Portugal, João Gulao, and saw it firsthand. And again, they're not trying to legalize drugs that like you can go to a store and buy them. They're just putting the power in the medical community of those addicts versus the judicial system. So you take an addict, you put them through mental health counseling, you put them through addiction counseling, you put them through job creation. And if, as I said, they need to inject, then you take them to a clinic and you let them inject your heroin, fentanyl, whatever it is, at the safe, clean dose under observation. And so you don't have any overdose deaths either. Now your prison system's cleaned up, your law enforcement can focus on the real shitbags of the world. And you've cut the head off the snake as far as supply and demand of the, the drug, you know, illicit drug industry that's supplying terrorism. The number of operators I've had on here that have seen that that's what feeds terrorism. It's what obviously is causing so many issues at the Mexican border. I mean, all these things, the gangs, everything, the Crips and the Bloods of the 80s, that wasn't about their favorite color. That was about money and power using drugs. So that to me is how we do it. We get people to understand, just like Johan Hari wrote about in Chasing the Scream, that addiction is a mental health problem. And is no different than a, you know, slip disc or a broken femur or, you know, a, a spleen that's ruptured. It's wiring in the body. It's chemistry in the body that's probably rooting from childhood trauma that once addressed, that person could be an amazing, you know, attribute in the American fabric. Instead, when we, the way we do it at the moment 
we create all these issues that is, you know, creating a war zone in some streets and just a, a freaking litter of corpses of all these poor men and women, many of whom that are in uniform, as you and I know, that we find dead in their beds the next morning. And how closely related do you think PTSD and addiction is when it comes to rewiring of the brain? Because in my opinion, I see a lot of similarities. Oh, 100%. Now, one of the most astounding things for me, because I'm the reason I started this podcast was to disseminate information. And the most selfish part of this podcast is I'm the one that gets to answer the questions or ask the questions and choose the guests. So, you know, I'm constantly evolving and learning and growing myself. And uh, Jake Clark from Save a Warrior, I know you have Matt Fienza on. Uh, he's a friend of mine from Anaheim. He really opened my eyes to the impact of childhood trauma. So you add in childhood trauma to the things that we see, the things that we do, the people we lose, and there's going to be a form of addiction if you don't. I mean, if, if there are healthy coping mechanisms, beautiful. You know, if, if you are able to see counselors, if you're able to have, you know, yoga, mindful practice, you know, hiking, whatever works for you, then you never go down those negative ones. Beautiful. But a lot of our men and women do. And I think another big misnomer is people think of addiction as opiates, you know, drugs, hard drugs. They don't look at alcohol, food, gambling, sex. And all these other things that, that, you know, are the same exact thing, filling the void of worthlessness through whatever dopamine hit they can get. So absolutely 100% those two are connected. And what's really sad, again, with drug prohibition, the number of especially elite operators I've had on that have had great results with psilocybin for PTSD and TBIs. And those, some of them like literally SEAL Team 6 members who fought for this country, and they have to go overseas to get the treatment for their PTSD and their TBI. That's just absolute insanity. MDMA-led um, counseling is another one that they're experimenting on in the UK. Same thing. You can go and do a study, but you can't actually you know, volunteer for it unless you're in that study. And I've been hearing there's, there's some good results from that going on. Oh, both are amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the MDMA one, you just do three sessions. You don't walk away with, with MDMA. You take it, you do the counseling session. Those walls, those internal walls that we have come down. They call it a love drug for a reason. And you you open up. And I think, I want to say it's like you have one one week. I think it's like two weeks later, you have a second session. And six weeks later, I think if I got that right, it's been a while. You have the last one and they've shown it just continues, continues, continues to heal. Because when people have locked that stuff away or they don't feel comfortable talking it just pulls those walls down so they can access that trauma that that you know has just been cancerously growing inside them yeah it's amazing so i had some childhood trauma and i'm a total firm believer of this and i had a great childhood man i have a great family you know but i had some elements of trauma but i didn't catch on to it till i was about 40 something years old maybe 42 years old i'm walking through walmart and a lady walks by me in the smell of her lotion or her perfume, whatever she was wearing, man, stopped me in my tracks, took me to a memory as I'm standing in the middle of Walmart, right? Took me to this memory and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I was able to work through this memory, work through these elements, and that's where the real healing began. But I'm talking, it was 30 years removed from when the childhood trauma happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, and I've been very, very lucky. I had some traumas. You know, I had, uh, I was actually in a house fire when I was four and almost died. And my eight-year-old sister actually got us out, which was amazing. And uh, we had a wall miss our family car that fell as a dude. And I mean, it probably seemed bigger when I was younger, but this, this wall was probably 20 feet high, these big blocks. And he was up there digging his garden. I never forget looking at him. He was kind of leaning on his 
fork as this wall fell down and just missed our car, crushed like, you know, four cars behind us. Luckily, they were parked. But and then my parents divorced. So I remember those, but I've been so lucky. I think everything else in my life was so good growing up. And I'm sure we even processed those healthily. We're a very large, close family that was uh, that was able to be processed. But so many of the people that have come on this show, so many have childhood trauma because our profession attracts people that were hurt for two reasons. Firstly, they they want to be the protector. They, you know, the buck stops here, that they don't want to be the victim. And secondly, what's interesting is that adrenaline that you alluded to even in, in the stunts, which I think is far more in, in, in our professions, that fills the void too. And that busyness that you see, especially as you start noticing men and women taking all the overtime shifts and just, you know, or part-time gigs, and they're never at home, they're never still, they're never, you know, alone with their thoughts, that's another element too. So you take that childhood trauma and then you compound not only what we see, but a huge thing I talk about is sleep deprivation. Just, I mean, absolutely massive. If you want, if you want people to be physically and mentally ill, put them on shifts, guaranteed to break them down. So that creates that perfect storm, adds some environmental stress, you know, some upper echelon that's creating a very negative work environment or section, you know, whatever it is. And then, you know, you've just got this horrendous cocktail for addiction or God forbid, even suicide. A tornado meeting a volcano, man, just an epic collision. And every year, everything you're saying is Christ. So why get into this type of work? Where do we go from here? For our professions? Yeah. I mean, if people are listening to this, because I'm going to tell you right now, if you have a decision between uh, what you want to do in life, become a firefighter, not a police officer. My son's getting to that point. If he ever asked me, Dad, what do you think? I'm like, stay away from being a police officer, man. Everybody loves firefighters. On the outside, till it comes to budget time. And they're closing down fire stations. You know, I mean, that's a facade too. The same way as everyone loved the uh, NHS in, in England. Didn't give them any extra money, hospital staff. They just stand outside and clapped during COVID. You know, it's a facade. It really is. So, but here's what I think we need to do. Firstly, like I said, address drug prohibition. If you truly want to make a difference in this country and truly save lives, that's where we need to, to look. Secondly, a big thing that I work for four departments in the end, because I moved out west and then came back out east. And and each time I had to do a polygraph, which is the biggest waste of money I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I lied my way through three of them and it wasn't anything to be proud of, but I was honest, my very first app. Yeah, I tried something a long time ago. Oh, you're disqualified. Oh, okay. All right, I get it. So I got to lie to be a firefighter. I got it. So, oh no, I've never tried anything. I was too busy in church reading the Bible. All right, you got the job. Good job. So, and then there's a the sight test. Those thousands of bubble thing. Hey, do you like flowers? Do you like cats? Do you like cows? Do you touch kids? Do you like, what, what, what was that? What was that last one? You know, so again, just box checking BS, not helping anyone at all other than, oh, Brock did something crazy. Yeah, well, back then we tested him, so it's not our problem, you know? Instead, take that same budget. You don't have to find an extra penny. And instead of that BS, do a background check that you do anyway. That way you know if we're actually worthy of this career. Do the exercise, you know, the, the physical test and the written test and take that money that you wasted on polygraphs and background checks and put your new recruits through three, five sessions of counseling. Firstly, you give an opportunity to offload anything that we bring into the profession. And secondly, from day one, you've created a relationship with a counselor that any time, professionally, personally, you need to reach out to someone, you know that person is right there. That to me is how we change it. And then thirdly, if we're going to ask men and women to stay up while everyone else is in bed and watch their six, we need to give people more time to rest and recover between these shifts, whether it's fire, whether it's police, whatever. You are absolutely correct. Because, I mean, think about that. Sleep deprivation is what a tactic that we use in the military to break prisoners of war. And yet, 
we're doing the same thing to our first responders who we're expecting them to respond on scene and act 100% right all the time being sleep deprived. How does that happen? I mean, it's just impossible. Yeah. Well, especially with, with, I always use your profession as an example when it comes to this. So on top of the fact that both of our professions, we have these intersection wrecks where the innocent family is killed because they blast through a red light. How many of those were actually sleep deprivation based? Then you have those gray area calls, not the Derek Chauvin calls, but the gray area calls. And I just saw the recent stabbing where that woman was shot. I mean, if it's my son or daughter being stabbed, shoot away. I'm not thinking about the color of that person. Someone is having a knife, holding a knife, trying to stick it into my son's heart so I never see him again. I stick him into the ground. That's not even a gray area. That was a great job done. You know, they only had a second to figure that out. But the gray area ones, the ones where I think there was one recently, it was a, it was a younger guy. He was running through, did have a gun. He had a gun. He just put it behind the fence. Yeah. Exactly. And he had, it was empty on because he'd already shot him into the air or whatever it was. But regardless, firearm in hand, running away, dark, maybe a veteran officer, clear head, well slept, might have made a different decision. But those are the gray area calls where if you want the safest environment for our civilians, and I've had some stuff happen at the, the hands of law enforcement where my son ended up in a psych facility because of horrendous policing and and interaction with schools but again i don't hold that personally to the department i'm currently in the process of fixing that issue right now but you know we have to understand that if you're going to be asked to do something at a moment's notice and you take away the one thing that allows clear cognition which is sleep and you start understaffing these departments and mandatory extra shifts back to back we're creating an environment for law enforcement to make the wrong decision for civilians to to be killed when they shouldn't have been and that's again that's the gray area it's not all all the good decisions that people make despite but those those gray area ones so again if people are truly concerned about lives and safety and all that stuff we need more training we need more staffing i think I don't, it's insanity to me that police ride one to a car in so many departments you want to reduce those deaths two to a car every single call so that way when you have that person who outweighs i'm, I'm 170 most men on this planet outweigh me and i'm not even a small small guy you know so and i'm trained you know in martial arts and stuff but even so a 250 the ex-linebacker is going to whoop my ass no matter how much training I've done. So, you know, all these things require more investment. But then on the other side, you take away the likelihood of young boys and girls turning to the criminal element if you cut the head off the snake of that too. So it's a double-pronged attack in my opinion. And I noticed, James, one of my biggest frustrations as a police officer is I wanted training. I wanted to be trained, right? And I remember probably 80% of the trainings that I put into, they denied. And they always came back to, it's a staffing issue. You can't go to training because I need you here on the streets. So how do we ever evolve? Other than the experience that we get from being on the street, we never get to become greater than what we can become from those experiences. I was going to say another thing. I just came across a firefighter who just trying to bring even more solutions. He works for a uh, telemedicine company now, telehealth. And so what they've started doing, and it's interesting because it affects law enforcement too, when you come to the mental health calls, is when someone calls 911, they say, all right, do you want, if it's a medical call, for example, do you want to for us to call you an ambulance 
or would you like to do a video conference with an ER physician? Well, that concerned parent of the three-year-old that's got a fever and has thrown up once, that's probably a much better decision. So they do that. Well, there's a mental health element too. Of course, the guy, you know, on meth running around with a knife or, or PCP, that's not a telehealth conversation that you're going to be having. You're going to be sending you guys. But the person that's depressed, the person that, you know, is the lower acuity psych calls, that's another option too, to take calls off your hands and put it into, I mean, the, the trained professionals. And that's what happened with my son. Undertrained, just idiot, for lack of a better word, police officer ended up putting my son in a psych facility for three days from a complete lack of training and actually abandonment of very well-written protocols within that school, between him and the, and the principal of the school. Awful. So, you know, by allowing other professionals to take some of the caseload from you guys, would help as well you know so there's all these tools that we can start using and then again with this removal of prohibition imagine all the drug related crimes that are out there imagine them i mean it's not going to happen overnight going away now you've got more men and women on the street to cover while others go in training one of the biggest unknown um, areas of the fire service is most of the training that we have we took vacation time to do and we paid out of pocket to take so all my special operations classes all those I paid for those myself. You know, more often than not, I took a week of my vacation time to go do those classes or did trades or whatever it was. So any other profession that they would go and the plumber would go to plumber conferences on his on his weekend off is unheard of. But in our professions where lives are at stake, it's a norm. And that, that needs to change too. But the way that we add more staffing is cre create less crime. You know what I mean? Otherwise, it's, it, I mean, we've seen our prison system has gone from, I think we had 350,000 prisoners in the 70s, and now we're up to 2.2 million. And that's not, someone once said, oh, that's population growth. No, I'm no Einstein, but no, it's not population growth. And what have we added different to help these men and women when they get out? Because they're getting out. I mean, there's a, what? 4% of the population that stays in there for life, the rest are getting out. So what are we doing to train them to give them help to when they come out, they're ready to go? Yeah. And that's what Norway does so well. If you see Bastoy, which is the one that uh, I think Holden is the other one, but Bastoy was the one I got the governor on a couple of times now. Their prison looks like a housing community. Now, these men and women don't have their freedom. They lost their civil liberties because they're incarcerated, but they are in a house. They live together, they cook, they clean, they hold down jobs, they learn trades and education, and they have you know recreational activities so they're not going crazy locked up as well. And it's funny because COVID this last year gave everyone a little glimpse of what it's like to be in prison and most of them didn't like it very much. So again, as you said, 100%, that person is going to move back next door to you. Do you want someone who's been living like a normal human being and rehabilitated? Or do you want someone who's been living in a six by eight cell with who knows who, you know, bunking with them? Just mad. And I would be too. And I, I totally understand it. And then the addiction in the prisons, you know, the way that's used as a predatory currency and you know, all these things, you know, it's, it's a recipe again for failure, not success. So people say, oh, but it's so complicated. It's not complicated. We just have to have the balls to address the, the nucleus of, of these problems and hit them right at the beginning. But that involves you looking past your four-year political career, growing a set and actually doing something that will affect, you know, 10 years from now. I mean, that same thought process that you're given, that same set of balls that we got to have. We got to have those with in our own departments too. You know, I look back as you talked about PTSD and, and the way my addiction went. I wish there were times where I had the balls to stand up and say, guys, I'm struggling. 
I can feel it. I need more sleep. I need some time off. I can't keep going at this rate, you know? And, and I went through a shooting and I was run over and I had all these traumatic events happen. But guess what? There was no aftercare. Zero. Other than the psychologist that signed my paper that says, hey, you can come back to work. That was it. And he wasn't culturally competent. He didn't understand anything about trauma, about getting in a shooting, about police work, about what it's like when you go to a scene and it's pitch dark and you're scared to death, but you still got to act anyways. You know, he didn't understand that stuff. So for me, it was really hard to have a conversation with this guy because he wasn't educated in what we do. Well, and the shootings, I mean, I've had people on the show, PJ and Christine Correa, who were shot on duty and then their department kind of like washed their hands of them. You know, shot on duty or hit by a car on duty and then were kind of abandoned. And then even if it's not that, I don't think people realize as well when we get hurt, when it is the back injury, the knee injury, the, you know, whatever, that when we come off shift and we go sit in our apartment home, whatever, maybe with your family still, maybe you're divorced. I mean, who knows what it is? The mental element, the mental impact of an injury. And I had a, I wrote about in the book, I had a near career ending back injury eight years ago now, I think it was, and was able to, to rehab. It's funny, I'm wearing a t-shirt, able to rehab using this foundation training, which is a movement practice, but never had surgery or anything. But it was five years of Cairo PT, this this practice, but going from kind of uber athlete, type A firefighter, you know, climbing all kinds of stairs with all my gear and doing evolutions and CrossFit and strongman and martial arts and all that to I can't even put my shoes on. I can't pick up my son. I can't, you know, make love to my wife. I can't do any of this. I was blown away at the the impact of the mental health side. And that's another side that we got to think about, you know, whether it was someone involved in a shooting who has now been told to stay at home for X amount of days while they investigate, or they were shot, they were hurt, whatever. When we remove our men and women from the tribe, you know, the fire station, the police station, whatever it is, that has a huge, huge impact on mental health. And that could be, you know, the final straw. So they don't want to spend any money. They don't want to bring experts in. They don't want to give us time off. They don't want to change the culture. How do we? We're doing it now, I believe. I really do. And kudos to the Joe Rogans and Tim Ferriss and you know, Garrett Tesla, even, you know, the, the squad room and Barbell Shrugged and all these these podcasts that started me, you know, got me into this kind of new realm. But there is no filter here. There is no governing body. There's no sponsor to say, oh, you can't say this, you can't say that. This is how we disseminate information. This is how we have intelligent conversations that are long enough so that if someone was going to get triggered initially, drug prohibition is a perfect one. If you can actually draw the conversation out to the point where people truly understand, they go, oh, I actually never thought of it that way. Oh, it would, it would actually make it safer for us as law enforcement on the streets. I'm starting to see it a little differently now. So we think of education as a BS, you know, a bachelor's or a master's or a PhD. This is education. Talking to you, talking to, you know, you talking to Matty and Michael Sugra and, and Chris Fields and all these people that you've had on um, and me with, you know, again, the amazing people. I just had a guy, Major Capers, Marine recon from the Vietnam era. Amazing story. He talks very candidly about his mental health. He's 84 years old. I'm just about to put his episode out today, basically. But uh, yeah, I mean, just it's storytelling. The same way as ancient tribes told stories when they came back from war, when they came back from hunts, it's the same thing. And the more we, we, the men and women on the ground, whether you're a police or fire or farmer or blacksmith or plumber or whatever you are, when we compare notes and we go, oh, 
So, but these people have been telling us this the whole time. Well, of course they have, because they're getting a lot of them making a lot of money off us while they tell us this. But here's the reality. That heart disease that you have, if you eat this certain way without any pills and potions, you can reverse that. Your diabetes, you know, I mean, the COVID, if you actually exercise and had a good respiratory strength, you know, muscular system, even if you got it, you got a much higher chance of getting all that gunk off your, your chest and being just fine again, you know, but we're waiting for some miracle vaccination, you know, which I've had. You know, I, I want to travel again. And I just had it recently because I'm trying to go back to England and see my family. And my grandmother's 103. So if we talk to each other and when we talk about where we all agree, where we all meet, not these little minuscule differences. Oh, but I believe in this, you know, religion. I, yeah, but in the middle, you want your kids to thrive. Yeah, you want food in your stomach, you want roof over your head. You know, you don't want to feel like you're going to get murdered at night. These are all things we got in common. So stop worrying about this crap. Come in the middle where we all agree and let's have a proper conversation of the things that we standing side by by side can force these governing bodies to fix. I appreciate you, man. I love your your take on this, James. I love the opportunity to have a chance to speak with you. I'm talking with James Gearing, host and CEO at Behind the Shield Podcast. If they want to get a hold of you, learn more about you, what uh, where do they go? The podcast itself is on all the apps, so iTunes and Stitcher and you know uh, Spotify and all those. The best place social media is Instagram's Behind the Shield 911. I have Facebook, whatever algorithm they have. The 5,000 people on there can barely see anything I post. So I guess I got to pay for that. So I'm not going to. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. One more light is the book, Life, Death, and Humanity Through the Eyes of a Firefighter. Just look for the candle. I mean, that's that's it, really. But Behind the Shield now is 450 episodes. So that is a free library. And each person on there, just like you have, is either someone with a powerful story, you know, a strength and conditioning coach, nutrition. I mean, all just the whole gamut. Those prison wardens I told you about from Norway and the guy from Portugal and, you know, all these minds and, and people testifying from countries where that element has worked so well. And there's no reason why we can't make it work in here, in Australia, in, in the UK and all these places where, where we're struggling in certain areas and vice versa. People can learn from the US in certain areas. But when it comes to the violence on our streets and when it comes to the obesity epidemic and the, obviously the addiction epidemic that we have, it's time that we swallow our pride and say, OK, we need to look around for someone's doing it better than us. And I would tell people, go look at Portugal, go look at Switzerland, look at their crime rates, look at how they police, look at the number of deaths on the streets, and then you know, ask yourself, could we do it better? Love it, man. We have that ability. I appreciate your time today. Honestly, James, you were super informative, man. And uh, go check out his, his podcast, Behind the Shield podcast, I think for your service. One thing I did want to say is I appreciate the your take on and your love for first responders and, and law enforcement especially. There's a dialogue, a dichotomy between police officers and firefighters. We're always messing with each other, but uh, one without the other cannot exist. Exactly, which is why it blows me away when some departments police and fire don't get on or county and city don't get on. I mean, that is the most ridiculous thing. But I have so much admiration for anyone, dispatchers, you know, corrections, anyone who leaves their family and goes and protects a bunch of complete strangers and puts their life on the line. And that's obviously not a narrative that's told on TV. And then I have just if not more respect for the husbands, wives, children, whoever's left behind that are without that protector during riots, hurricanes, whatever it is that we left to protect those strangers to do. So so I see you guys as my brothers and sisters. And, you know, I know anyone that's worthy of the badge feels the same way in, in all our associated professions. Hey Amen, brother. I appreciate you. Keep chasing the vase. If you have any questions about addiction, check out uh, www.chasethevasechallenge.com. 
you want to learn more about uh, PTSD, check out James Gearing. Appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brock. It's been fun. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.